also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Hello and welcome uh, to this subscriber-only episode of The Bottleman. It's me, Dan, and in the same room as me. Yeah, for the third time now ever. That's right. It's it's Riley. Yes, hello. Uh, and hello to all of you listening to this subscriber-only episode. Uh, thank you for making time in between your high-flying business deals and shopping for bespoke <laughs> suits and top hats. Uh, I know that your $7 a month lifestyle... Uh, must be very tiring. $7 a month, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and joining us uh, from the Anglosphere, now uh, stuck in the Anglosphere, it's Peter Korotayev. Uh, you might remember Peter as a guest uh, prior to the invasion of Ukraine when we did a two-part series about Ukraine and uh, its economy and political economy. Peter, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah, I'm all right. Good to, see, good to hear you guys again. Good to hear you too. Um I gotta say, I'm 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 glad you made it out of Kiev, and and it's really nice to be talking to you again, and not just uh, texting over uh, Telegram or whatever. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's good. It's good. Uh, I mean, it's also like very sad, and I'm really sort of worried about my friends still there uh, who can't get out. Because honestly, I'm I'm not a Ukrainian citizen. That's why I was able to leave. Like lots of my friends aren't. They're under lots of uh, in lots of danger, basically. You know. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit uh, before before we like get into the meat of this episode. Um, I wanted to talk to you about how you got out, like the the process of of leaving Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like in the days before, because basically on the twenty second of February, uh, when Putin, that was like if I can recall correctly, that was when Putin gave like the speech, or whatever. Uh, and at that, and then there are also different announcements by the Russian government, and they recognized, I think, uh, the Republics. And I was like, okay, it seems like there's going to be some kind of war. I don't know what. Um, and I was pretty worried. Uh, until then, I sort of thought there wasn't going to be a war. 22nd, I was like, okay, it seems pretty, pretty bad. And uh, But I was still kind of, I thought it was going to be, my friends were like, oh, don't worry. Like, my friends now who are super, like, <laughs> like gung-ho and so on. Back then, they were like, oh, it's going to be a small war, you know, like, oh, who cares? But anyway, and then there was a big war, and I was like, oh, shit. Got woken up at, like, you know, 4 o'clock, like everyone else, my parents calling, and, um, and um, yeah, first day was really stressful, ran around trying to get money, thought I was going to get, like, bombed all the time, but, uh, and then I think on the first night, I can't, I can't remember the chronology. I explained that my Radio Warned thing, the chronology, that's when I actually remembered what days I did what. But yeah, like, you ended up in the metro station, right? Yeah, some days I was in the metro. That was really stupid. My girlfriend still doesn't forgive me for doing that because <laughs> it was kind of pointless. There was no need to actually do that. It was just really like cold and disgusting and awful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of my friends got stuck in the metro for like three days, which just sounds like the worst thing ever imaginable. Because you like, you know, have like a small amount of food. I remember you saying they were like closing the doors at night, like essentially like... You yeah, you leave. can't get out. Yeah, you can't get out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense. There's like people with, you know, AK-47s running around at night and stuff. So like, yeah, I mean, like the, the main the main enjoyable part of the <laughs> that whole experience was like, I met this like random, uh, these like foreigners, this like African dude and this Chinese dude. 
uh, no, African dude, Chinese woman. And I asked them, like, are you guys okay? Do you know? Because lots of, like, lots of uh, Africans in Kiev that didn't know what to do because they don't know Russian, Ukrainian, and, like, sort of explained to a couple of them what's going on because they were, like, really confused. Anyway, I talked to them, and they were like, oh, thank you. You can come to our, like, uh, shelter. And they're like, they're like some, like, the woman is this uh, businessman, businesswoman. And the man's this, like, uh, music recorder. They're all, like, kind of, like, big shot. Well, I don't know. But, like, in Ukraine, sort of. And um, Okay, so he's, like, a producer? like Yeah, he's, like, a producer or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and she, like, yeah, she, she like, uh, gives out loans, basically. <laughs> She's, like, a, a Chinese loan shark. Uh, and uh, basically, and that was really fun. I hung out with them. And then, like, they had this really, like, funniest guy I've ever met in my life. Uh, this, like, Romanian restaurant owner businessman who like occasionally came down from his penthouse he's like i'm the only one left in the hotel building i'm the most patriotic guy in ukraine and he's just like <laughs> and he's just like sitting up in his penthouse doing all like doing all doing, like so much coke uh for like three days and like literally just watching rockets like and like artillery duels because at this point in the first couple of days there were like all this wet, like you know that was when there was like russia was like right Right, the the Russian forces had had sort of almost penetrated the city, and there was the I mean, some uh, forces actually penetrated the city, and that was like really rare. And like you could see them, uh, <laughs> and uh, we could hear them, and so on. Uh, it was all really totally random. Yeah, that was really funny. He had lots of crazy stories, and then he was also like, we also had some like really you know intense sort of one to ones. That was fun. Wait, are you suggesting that a guy who has spent all who spent all three days doing coke in his penthouse is having some intense one to one conversations? Yeah, I don't know. He's like, he's kind of, he was kind of cool because he was like really all over the place. But also, he was really switched on because uh, at one point I was like, okay, you know, because I mean, he know he was telling us so many stories about how much you know, like how much corruption in in Ukraine and his experience as a businessman, you know, and also right. how like basically his business rivals they would just like basically tell the secret services to accuse him of being a separatist sponsor or whatever, you know, like all this crazy shit. And like, uh, you know, and just like, yeah, business rivals just using the government and like, the, especially the secret services and like different like patriots, you know, that would then yeah. like, you know, I, I, I saw this news so much, like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, uh, patriotic group attacks, you know, some rest, some, you know, like, I don't know, stall because they're sponsoring separatists. And it's like, right. So obviously, just like a business duel, a business like battle between like competitors. So there's a, it's interesting too, just as an aside, that you know, like in the last couple of weeks, I think it was like three weeks ago, Zelensky gave that speech where he essentially accused I can't remember the exact number, but it was like 600 plus uh, government and security service people of being um, saboteurs and/or spies and/or separatists. So this. This sort of accusation seems to be a way to, like, you know, just achieve either political or, uh, or even just business will on other people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I and I really like. Was this the one where he accused like Green Grandwald or whatever? <laughs> of yeah, being, like, yeah, 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 yeah. And there was yeah. a there was a mayor of uh, like a eastern eastern city in uh, in Ukraine who is a Russian speaker who was posting on Twitter just basically being like, "We're gonna seal the city." Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. out the saboteurs. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Kim, I believe his name is. Uh, yeah, Kim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in, in Nikolaev. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but I also liked what this Romanian guy was talking about, just how like uh, you know he's been a businessman in Ukraine for like four years or whatever, and he was just talking about how like the misconception of sort of thinking that some people are pro-Russian, some people are pro-European or whatever, 
mm-hmm. just because like you know both of these like you know there's, there's like heaps of european sort of like different business heaps of russian business in, in ukraine and then everything's just stuck in between sort of like these different influences whatever and right. a person who was yesterday was super pro european tomorrow can be so, super pro russian and then changed again you know it's just all and uh yeah and, and at some point i was talking to him like man you know this we're in a pretty shit situation right now because this is when there was like the the blockade. Well, I mean, kind of not really, kind of blockade of Kiev, basically. Yeah, I was like, we kind of can't get out, and like there are all these people with all these weapons. <laughs> right. Like, so, so this is after uh, this is after the Ukrainian d- government dumped something. I mean, I I think in Western media they're saying something like ten thousand uh, small arms into Kiev. Yeah, Bishop, and was, Bishop was forty thousand. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. Anyway, was, yeah. I, I, I can't remember the exact, but it was, Bishop was more, anyway a, a huge amount. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't worry. I'm sure they have. Uh, they're really. They know where all of them are now. <laughs> Yeah. At first they were like saying that there's like crime has gone down because people are like, I don't know, really patriotic Armed? or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Or, like, I mean, I guess people are going to the war and stuff. They're kind of distracted or whatever. But now apparently crime's going up. You got the crime stats going up according to the official official stats. Um, but um, anyway, and I was just like, man, are we going to be like, yeah, are we going to like do a Mosul right now? Are we going to just like, uh, and I was just like, kind of, you know, I was like, this is kind of shit, man, you know? And he's like, yeah. It's all pretty fucked. Um, anyway, he was like, yeah, we're kind of fucked. <laughs> and uh, he was like, yeah, I'm going to go with some journalists to the front tomorrow. What can you do? We can't leave, you know, like, <laughs> and um, Did he? I-, I don't know. I got a message him. That guy was like hilarious. But anyway, I always forget to. But like, anyway, I just always tell this Romanian guy because he was the coolest guy ever. But then basically we like we left you uh, the city. We took a train. I like slept on the floor. That was pretty funny. Were you were you worried about getting pulled off or conscripted at any nah. point or like press ganged into like Nah, nah. I mean I'm like I mean yeah, I mean I was like, oh what if that happened? But like it's not really like, you know. Um everything's really chaotic, first of all. And second of all, like I mean I'm not a citizen of Ukraine and I can just show them my thing. I'm like, I'm not a citizen of Ukraine. And, and even then, like at that point, there wasn't a thing where people were getting like pulled off and mobilized. I mean, I think in some places there were. But I think right. that's much more become a thing in like the past couple months. Like my friend who lives, who's like kind of like uh, living in Western Ukraine. Yeah, he like sits at home, doesn't leave home because like his wife does the shopping and shit. Because like, uh, yeah, people just get like snatched, like men just get snatched off at like like, like uh, when they go swimming and stuff. So anyway, but back then it wasn't really like, I mean, like there were some things we were like waiting in the line and some old lady was like to this guy next to us who we didn't know. He was like, why are you getting on the train? You know, like my son stayed and defend the city, you know, you blah, blah, blah. Uh, but like, that was just a random old lady, you know, like anyway, and we got to this like city in the West of Ukraine and chilled out there for a bit. That was nice. What was the, uh, just briefly, like, what was, uh, what was the vibe like? Cause I know the part of Western Ukraine that you, you went to and it is very different. It is very different, like culturally even than um, Kiev and definitely different culturally than Odessa or the East and, it's definitely like part of the Austro-Hungarian little chunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were in uh, Kaminsk-Podolsky, which I've been to like, like six years ago, or something with this like old friend of mine who's from there. But then like I've been there since. Uh, yeah, it's chill. I mean, it's just like a really small, really poor town. Not really small, but it's like yeah, like the the road. I feel really bad for the roads. They got really messed up roads. Uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty city. Uh, there were some nice people there. I remember, I remember when we got there the train and there was like randomly this friend from like 
sport that I know, like uh, my like sport buddy or whatever. He was at the train station uh, and we saw him and I like met up. It was super random. Uh, I felt really, yeah, I think he's okay now. But, like, but then like it was 12 o'clock and it was like a curfew. So like you can't leave, there's a curfew. So it's like, what? <laughs> we, we have like an apartment, like, you know, to it. Like, I don't know, like one kilometer from here. We can't leave. So you're stuck in the train station, essentially? Well, and then like, I don't know, we talked to these like huge, like crazy dudes with like giant guns and like all, you know, black all on their face, you know, like, and so on. So like, uh, I don't know, you can't see their faces and so on. And uh, these were some kind of like, I don't know, territorial defense, whatever, kind of a clip. And like, <laughs> we had this really funny conversation where like, uh, my girlfriend and her friend, they were talking to them and they were like just talking to them uh in ukrainian to be all like you know like oh can we leave this because we ha- apparently we have to like we could only go if our family member picked picks it up like, oh yeah our auntie's gonna get us and then like we had like to call this lady our flat owner it's not, it's not obviously not around not not around and uh and then like one of these dudes with the gun like as as my like girlfriend's friend is talking uh and like talking and obviously it's not our aunt right like <laughs> you can right, tell from right. the way we're talking to her and then he's like Tells his friend, he's like, something tells me it's not her art, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, it was it was all right. They let us they let us go. Uh, and I think, yeah. And then we got. I think at one point, like a girlfriend's friend who was just like, I don't know, it's really funny. She's like from from Donetsk, and she was just like. And then at one point, she was like, "Is it okay if we don't talk in Ukrainian or something?" <laughs> like asking these dudes <laughs> uh, with like giant guns, whatever. Anyway, it was fine. So so asking them if it was okay if she spoke Russian. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I don't know. It was, but then we got in this taxi. Tax driver was nice, uh, and he was just like, you know, like I wish peace for everyone. Blah blah blah. Uh, he was a nice guy. Uh, he was really chill, super like open, whatever. Um, and we got to our apartment. Really super crazy lady. Impossible to explain <laughs> how crazy she is. I don't know. She was just like yelling for ages about how like some lady came from Kharkiv and she wanted to see the apartment but we were driving and then she really wanted to go somewhere and i told her that the secret services will be watching i don't even know just like that she was just talking for endlessly just saying the most crazy shit anyway we got to this shit ass apartment left that apartment quickly because it was just like super super overpriced really awful um chilled out there and then we just crossed the border to romania it was fine we just like a friend of ours from instagram just like drove us over to the border yeah. and from there we just like waited in the line for a couple hours did you did you how did you find being in romania like 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 getting into the country during that there must have been like a huge amount of people trying to cross from like book of book of yeah we had to wait for like two hours funnily enough we were in the line there's like some like famous ukrainian instagram uh lady and she's like trans and like they didn't let her through and she was behind us in the line and there was like a photo i took of my girlfriend and she could see this lady behind her. And my, my girlfriend just follows her. And it was like really random. So, But she wasn't let through because she's trans. But then she got through. She like paid some bribes. And kind of, yeah, no, it was fine. And they gave us heaps of food and stuff. The border, all these like volunteers. We got heaps of like really nice food for free. That was super nice. The refugee luxe experience. <laughs> and Romanian food is, you know, I got to say is pretty good. Especially up there, you know, like Northern Romanian food. Pretty solid. Not bad. It's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember I got like this Egyptian friend of mine uh, and he like came to the country where I live now when he was young and he's got lots of friends, kind of like refugees, whatever. And like my friends told him what happened to me. And he was like, what the fuck? 
Peter fucked up so bad. How did he, he was living with us uh, over here and he was living the good life. And then he went over to a different country and became a refugee. What a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And then, and now you're, you're out of Bucharest and you're in the, uh, in the Anglo sphere again. People are calling, people are calling you buddy at the shop. Uh, yeah yeah we won't talk about it too much it's, it's yeah. a temporary sort of temporary temporary thing temporary uh, stuff over well yeah, yeah i mean i'm glad you i'm i'm obviously very glad you and your partner got out of got out of ukraine and we're lucky enough to get into uh the anglosphere the anglosphere welcome to the anglosphere yeah. but you know what i what i want to talk about is this incredible article that you wrote in jacobin recently um and i, I just want to preface this by saying in the West, we get a lot of updates on the war. Uh, we get updates on the conflict. Uh, we get updates on occasionally like uh, casualty reports, but not so often. Where is the high Mars? Where what is, is it looking yeah, at? Yeah, where is the high Mars? Who is shooting the high Mars? Who is shooting at the nuclear plant? What uh, do we need next after the high Mars? What do we need? So what on. is the next thing after the high Mars that we can meme about? Um, what we get a lot of we is, need the Dave Chappelle comedy How High Mars How High Mars yeah, yeah. we get uh, we get a lot of human interest stories uh, about this is how this is affecting like individual people in Ukraine um, which you know on one hand is necessary but on the other hand is like it, it depends on how these stories are deployed uh, the one thing we don't get to hear about is what the war is doing to Ukraine as a country specifically its economy and its labor force. And all the things that make a country, you know, a country. Yeah, the the, the stuff that the country is designed to uh, provide, organize, become the institutional basis for, whether you really like it or not, in terms of you know capital and all sorts. Yeah. Um, and how they uh, choose to go about uh, guaranteeing, um, you know, that they can continue doing that tomorrow, which they did yesterday. Yeah. And having read the Jacobin article, I'm, I guess I could say, um, I was. Uh, surprised at my, well not surprised uh i suppose because you you expect sort of the, these kinds of things to go this way but i was surprised at the um extent of enthusiastic privatization which usually is not something you associate with a wartime command economy yeah that's what i yeah that's it that's what i want to talk about so like war you know you make the case in the article that which is very simple and very true that war has a has a habit of turning an economy into a command economy, but this is strangely and weirdly not happened in Ukraine. Um, in fact, it seems like it's done kind of the opposite. So, yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, like you know, I mean, finally, some people are responding. I mean, I got some really hilarious responses to my article, but like a- some people were saying, responses like, or yeah, like- yeah, really, really angry responses. Uh, I mean, some people were like, "What the fuck? That's a lie about how like most countries nationalize stuff in wartime." I mean, I don't even know if it's worth like responding to that. But like, you know, I mean, I think any person who knows what happened in the U.S. in World War II, you know, I was just looking at like thing on 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 the internet, or whatever, and you know, it's like. 80% of GDP was federal spending and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I mean, they were like nationalizing our whole industries and so on and so on. But like, yeah, basically in Ukraine, they sort of, they had like, I mean, like, you know, they're, they're, it's not as if like there'd be no measures of state intervention. At the beginning of the war, the, I talk about this a little bit, like there were some like measures for like capital controls adopted by the central bank. Um, but they're being kind of rolled back in the past like 
two months or so around the time that I wrote my article a little bit before that it's, it was starting. And now the central bank is moving kind of like they, they want to, uh, they want to float the exchange rate, um, which is like, you know, interesting in wartime and they want to float the exchange rate and they want to kind of get rid of these capital controls and they're kind of easing them. So but basically there have been some measures, but that was the only measures. And then like, apart from that, uh, yeah, there's been no, like, the the defense sector like the, there is like a state kind of like state private defense uh cooperation like uh but uh it hasn't really sort of not many incredible things been happening with it most people just sort of like i don't know right right now there's kind of a funny thing happening where one of the big anti-corruption dudes who the, like the west like loves shabunin He's doing some like uh, and he's kind of close with like Poroshenko and stuff or whatever and he's doing some big expose of how like the state defense sec the defense company it's corrupt oh no 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 it's not it's not well it's not it's not really so much corrupt but it's like it's just got it's got no like it uh, system to to track the weapons and shit and also just to keep stuff like you know orderly and like you know distribute stuff properly which is kind of interesting because that means he's repeating the russian narrative of the uh yes you know 30 30 percent of weapons don't reach the uh, the russian cbs narrative that 30 yeah, yeah. of weapons oh, no, no. yeah only 30 percent of weapons reach the front line or whatever and i was gonna say that abc article I, th- I think it was abc or cbs it was cbs yeah you're you're right um that ab that cbs article was uh swiftly uh sort of um, amended and retracted but it still came out, though, you know, and like uh, it did still come out, which is a sign. Yeah. And uh, and Shabudin, who's like a totally a U.S. like Western product, he's talking about this and kind of getting mad. And then like Zelensky, pro-Zelensky people are like raging at him like, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, that's kind of interesting about like defense sector sort of stuff. But unrelated. But anyway, but apart from that, yeah, so they've been talking. I, I translated two articles in my Substack by like uh, Yulia uh, Sviridienko, who's like the she's like the vice prime minister of Ukraine, and she's the minister of economic development and trade. I published the, I translated these like after I wrote my Jackman article, but she just basically, you I can, you guys can link it in the description. Whatever. She talks about how, like how basically like Ukraine just needs to like, it needs to achieve optimal size for the state. And this is like when you have no more than 20, 20% of GDP spent on the budget. And then we'll have, you know, like super, super growth. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's it seems interesting, right? Because it's everywhere, every country that adopts the sort of dogma of having a small and nimble state, what it does is it runs down its ability to do anything, right? By by either by um, by sort by trusting that with the right set of incentives that the market will deliver the optimal results, and it seems to be perfectly honest, laughable. This idea that again, with in some cases, you know, explosions going off within earshot, uh, what the government is trying to do is set the right level of income tax rebate or whatever that they can create to encourage the defense industry to produce what they need. Yeah, short of natural disaster, a war is essentially like is probably the next uh, the next most important thing for uh, having a, having a state that can actually do something like produce ammunition or feed its soldiers or uh, secure you know secure wages for there's a there's a you, you know, you talk about railway workers in this article, and that, that was one thing that kind of shocked me is that the, the rail lines uh, have become, you know, a way uh, they're critical for transporting uh, goods, food, 
weapons, whatever. And in your article, you you describe how uh, railway workers have had their uh, salaries cut. Their salaries are often late. And uh, yeah, this seems not optimal. Yeah, it's definitely it's very bad. But I mean, like, I just wanted to read out a little bit from this article that I translated by Sivirodenko. Like, there's this really funny line. Uh, she had like, it is a scientifically proven fact. The lower the fiscal percentage of GDP, the higher the economic growth. Uh, and she says, I believe that despite the war... Riley's having an aneurysm. Because, I mean, you, you do know, you, you, you're you familiar with what that's referring to, right? Yeah, well, yeah, let me, let me just finish yeah, stop. Okay, this stuff. This, this, this bit's awesome. I, I believe that despite the war already from January 1st, 2023, this was written like a month ago, by the way, we should reduce the fiscal percentage of GDP in Ukraine from 45% to 30%. And then within 10 years, confidently move towards this federal reduction and reach 20% in 2032. I would say to all supporters of Marxism-Leninism, a reduction in the size of the state inevitably generates growth. Therefore, not surprisingly, lower tax rates ultimately lead to higher government revenues. To achieve the optimal size of the state, we must start with a liberal tax reform, adopt a liberal labor code. We have already introduced some of its elements during the war and also carry out a major reform of social benefits based on a single digital register. And then he just talks about how we need we need a lot more small business. We've got too much. Uh, we got these. It's, it's, uh, we need what the fuck business. is a small business going to do when you're fighting a, an existential war against a peer rival? Well, she's saying that like Russia is destroying the big the big Soviet plants. So they're like, who needs them? They're, 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 they're destroyed anyway. And she says that Poland and England and the US, they have uh, economic structure which is diversified with lots of small, medium businesses. What, what so. in the fuck? <laughs> like, does she? So, so Russia is rapidly deindustrializing Ukraine, and that's a good thing because yeah, because you're gonna have more like like um, more. Ser- you're gonna switch to a service economy. You're gonna have like a no- high wage knowledge economy because all of the factories are gone. I mean, what what gave me what gives me an aneurysm about that is that she's talking about the scientific fact of um, correlation of um, uh, uh, sort of the, the uh, fiscal debt to GDP, right? Um, that is from a paper called Growth in a Time of Debt by Cameron Reinhardt and Kenneth Rogoff uh, that was based on an Excel error. It has been not just disproven, it has been shown to be based on a coding error. That's not true. It is... It is it is a famous academic scandal that this was essentially a fake paper that guided sort of years of austerity economics in the West. It was literally cited by George Osborne when he introduced austerity in Great Britain. It is, it's to say it's a scientific fact is kind of like saying, I don't know, um, geocentrism is a scientific fact. Uh, yeah, and, and then like she also has some other stuff. I mean, I'm not gonna read it out, read it out, but like she just talks about how like the eighth step for our economic miracle is the further reduction is the further reduction of the size of the state and the economy through mass privatization. Ukraine still owns three thousand five hundred state-owned enterprises. <gasps> shock, shock horror. And it says each object is a potential site for creating new production capacity, preserving what exists if there is something to save. Uh, the trends of state-owned enterprise to private ownership through privatization is another impetus for economic growth. Um, anyway, yeah, it's, it's pretty all pretty awesome. And there's, there's a, and, and the other the other thing about these articles is she just talks like she got this really like awesome bit which is like the sixth step is intensive capital investment in industry. And she's just like there's a theory the most modern of economic growth. It's by Robert Solow, 
he got the Nobel Prize for this. And he says, and she says, like, the beauty of the solar model is its simplicity. He proved that economic growth has three components, amount of capital, amount of labor, and general factor of productivity. And she says, for economies with low fixed asset accumulation, capital is crucial. We need more cash. And she just, man, she just says, like, we need to invest more, basically. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, and we're I mean, going to do that, this- of course, by selling off all the state industries at, you know, uh, per- Pen- pennies, pennies on the, on the dollar for yeah. tiny amounts of their value. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And I mean, awesome. I talk about the whole, like, what's it, like the Lugano plan or whatever for Ukraine in my Jacobin article. And uh, yeah, I mean, they, they just kind of had this thing where, like, you know, we're going to get like 300 billion from the <laughs> grants, 300 billion from private capital. Uh, 300 billion from somewhere else or i can't remember the exact number but like it's three i think it was 750 billion total they wanted to get for like all these you know crazy huge investments and it's just like you know why why are they going to come if you like you know you have no like state support for industry you're in a you know you're in a war um but they just yeah i mean it's basically like the whole like before the war and still they just like this sort of they just have this like really impressive faith i guess in like private industry that's just gonna like it's gonna solve everything that's a question i wanted to ask you it's kind of a stupid question basic question but uh do you because just hearing you say this these these people talking during a war essentially saying what we need to do is is privatize the economy all these these neoliberal plans like when the country is at war do you think that that mindset comes from years of you know like we talked about on on the last time you came on the show like years of the sort of attempted neoliberalization of the Ukrainian economy and these people have just been pilled or is it that they owe that Ukraine is holding all this foreign debt and this is now the only way the economy can function and that to do state capitalism or sorry to do yeah state command economy is to be more like the the hated russians yeah i think it's both really yeah I mean, like, uh, you also have this sort of thing where it's like, I happen to see this on like social media or something where it's like, cause, I mean, some people obviously are like annoyed in the, in the, in the comments. Like I look at the comments on Facebook to like this article, other articles, I mean, like about like, you know, we need to more have, we need to prioritize more shit. And like lots of people are annoyed, you know, they're like, what, you know, this is really stupid. It's not going to work. I mean, like Ukrainians, but then people in the comments would be like, what do you want us to be like Russia? <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Russia, which famously has a lot of state-owned enterprises it didn't give away and to for like pennies on yeah, the for, dollar no, for, for jeans yeah or uh well i mean yeah, like they do have vouchers. they have more they have more state-owned enterprises than ukraine does now but yeah i mean they also privatize heaps of stuff obviously and so on like but like they have this thing where it's like if we stop if we start not privatizing stuff we're going to be just as bad as our enemy and then why are we fighting and this is kind of like this thing that uh, supporters of this kind of thing say uh on the internet yeah, I, th- I think it's kind of both, you know? I mean, like, the creditors don't want to, Ukraine to do this. It also is kind of a thing, I mean, like, I don't think, it's not even really possible for the Ukrainian state to do this. Like, to, I mean, like, to sort of, like, be, I mean, no, I mean, so, a little bit more is possible, for sure. Of More, like, I mean, I think, not on again, I mean, I think the Ukrainian state by itself uh, couldn't, like, properly sort of do some kind of state interventionist kind of thing and, you know, like, build up a kind of sort of state economy. It'd be really, really difficult, especially since, like, They've gutted all of this, you know, like the knowledge, the education sector, knowledge sector over the past, like, you know, decades and years. So there wouldn't really be people with the knowledge to do this. And the state is the state sector so weak after all this privatization that, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, if Ukraine has these like amazing, awesome partners that are just like super eager to help it, they have lots of knowledge. They could easily, you know, do that, but they're they're not right. They're like selling weapons and so on and so on, Uh, selling stuff to it. 
but um you know you can't really fault them either you know like they 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 want money for their stuff and they're not gonna like you know just hand over some factories and i mean it's you know and i mean i guess the other thing is is like you know in ukraine you got all this uh basically any point in ukraine can be targeted by uh rockets so some people say like oh it's pointless to create like domestic industry because they can just get destroyed by rockets uh which is kind of fair enough but uh i think with stuff like monetary policy uh which i talk about a lot in my article like there's not really much reason apart from just like I mean, apart from like, which I, I cite this Ukrainian economist, uh, Kush, who like talks a lot about this kind of stuff. Like the reason, the only real reason why you'd want to like uh, float the currency is just to like make it easy for capital to like ditch the country basically and to like abandon all of its like holdings and like the domestic currency and just like, you know, fuck off to like a foreign bank or whatever. Yeah. Go uh, the cap. The capital can go have uh, lunch with Poroshenko and his uh, and his large son in London. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, like, cause yeah, I mean, like, with monetary policy, it's very clear that like this is just like this is just like kind of dogmas and so on. And I think like the desire of lots of capital to just sort of like ditch the country, uh, it's not really justifiable. I don't think in like a, in wartime. I mean, overall, I think like you'd have like I mean, like what I would think is like if you if you were like super serious, uh, the these like past eight years or whatever about this existential battle uh, with this giant neighbor nearby, it would make more sense to probably like prepare more in terms of like you know domestic military industry and so on and so on. Yeah, you know, but like that didn't really happen uh, for like a variety of like pretty uh, big reasons. Earlier, Dan, you know, you you said that you know this this. after after a natural disaster, war is the one thing you'd want to build up your state capacity for, right? Yeah. Um, and if we sort of and, and yeah, say you know this has been going on for eight years, the sort of the the, the widespread belief that this is something that was possibly imminent. Um, I think the the model for what we were looking at actually is a natural disaster. It's Katrina in in New Orleans. You know, this there is a natural disaster. We must we must re, uh, create charter schools. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That's totally true. And and it was and you know, who cares if the people who um you know promulgated it believed it, uh, because it's what they managed to do. And I think it's that, you know, it's um it it's that especially uh, capital, especially financial capital, kind of only uh has one interest, which is uh liberalization, uh liberalization of labor laws, Privatization of things because it's it it it's 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 sort of propelled by nervous energy minute by minute second by second, and um you know it's uh it is so so different from the Fordist capital of uh of that that was defining sort of what the last time there was a major military competition between um between peers like this mm-hmm. right um or between sort of peers peer states uh and you know it. it it makes sense, I think, to me that it's, that it has been unable to organize itself in a way that is conducive to to doing what the state wants. You know, it lets out all the capital, but then Peter, as you write in your um, in your uh, uh, article, all the capital is let out, so it has to be attracted back in, and so we're going to uh, liberalize the labor code because you know mass unemployment and, and suppression of labor activism is already part of a wartime economy, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and with the sort of whole suppression of the labor code, I think lots of that is also kind of part of the package for encouraging more like uh, European financial aid and so on. Because like, 
they're kind of sort of saying like, look, you know, like we're helping you out, we're like, you know, sort of creating better labor pool for you guys and so on. And, and this is kind of what they talked about in the Lugano plan the, for the reconstruction of Ukraine. The Ukrainian government was talking about how like, you know, like afterwards we're going to have all this sort of great stuff uh, with like sort of flexible labor force and blah, blah, and like, you know, European investments and so on and so on. So it's kind of clear the kind of model they're going for. I think I talked about as well about how like the in the Lugano plan, one of the projects that they talk about is also a train to Poland from a high-speed train to Poland from uh, from Kiev. Uh, which is which is got got a little bit of uh, attention in Ukrainian sort of like media as being an interesting proposal to make in terms of reconstruction of the country. But, it's um, interesting to see like yeah. the Lugano plan and and sort of see it in parallel with uh, something I think we've talked about on the show before, which is uh, the Office of Simple Solutions and Results, which was a Saakashvili led. What is it? they say that they're like an NGO almost? It's they're. Their website is very difficult to parse out, like in what capacity they have authority. But basically, they're a lobby group that, uh, and they have all of these bills listed on their website. Um, but that uh, has been pushing through labor, like labor reforms, bit by bit, in uh, Ukrainian parliament. Um, and, uh, and they're focusing. They they focus on anything. Like I read a recent one that was like taxi drivers. They're like stripping away labor rights from like uh, livery services. You know, like. Yeah, they're fi- fighting fighting the good fight against the Soviet bureaucracy. That's 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 how they put it. Uh, there's, there's all this Soviet trade union bureaucracy. Is what they always like to say, and it's just like it's just really messing up Ukraine. You know, it's just it's destroying it. So, um, but yeah, there's like a good sort of article on uh, Ukrainian website about like sort of labor reform, and basically like every year there's been some labor reform. So it's like a very long term process, uh, bit by bit, because you know it's obviously very unpopular and so on. Uh, there kind of wasn't much labor reform in like the Yanukovych period, 2010-2014. There was kind of like a lot less, or like it's and like before, yeah, in, in that kind of little period. But then after it like really sped up, and even in like 2017, 2020, there were like multiple each year, multiple different bills passed. And uh, yeah, and this office, because yeah, it's kind of like a, it's a lobby. It doesn't really do much, like <laughs> uh, apart from just lobby sort of stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't have any, like, you know, if you're a business and you want some solution, it's not going to give you a simple solution. <laughs> it doesn't care about that. It, uh, it's more about, like, yeah, sort of uh, just liberalizing the, you know, everything, basically. And, uh, you know, and they have lots of contacts with, like, you know, Saakashvili, you know, through, like, with the West and so on and so on. And also, the, I think in, in the other simple solutions, they also have a lady from the Golos, party which is like the most pro-western party which is super like bankrolled by like you know atlantic council and all that sort of shit and like uh fukuyama lovers and so on like the the, the guy who made the party he like, <laughs> i think we're gonna talk about this guy at some point this is vakarchuk he's like the uh the pop star who then became like a fukuyama nerd and he like went to California and read all of fukuyama's works it was like studied with studied with fukuyama in 2020 and but then he came back and his party like ditched him because they were like you know you spend too much time in California with Fukuyama. <laughs> you you gotta uh, come back. You gotta keep writing hits, man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's hilarious. But I mean, he's yeah. I mean now he's back in Ukraine. He's 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 doing some songs and stuff. Um, but like, uh, but yeah, like basically this party's super super pro. Where it's it's like the party of like urban tech nerds basically it people and like you know urban professionals or whatever right. uh, the people, the people who much. would uh, who would do a color revolution because they couldn't get the new ipad at the same time their friends in berlin got the new exactly iPad. yeah yeah it's it's, it's this it's, it's this vibe you know like 
And uh, yeah, they were kind of part of the lobby for this kind of labor liberalization. And uh, yeah, and all, I mean, like basically all of the stuff has now been officially passed because it's, it's kind of, there's like a process, right? To like, you know, actually get into law. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's the situation with that. I mean, Saakashvili, he's, he's headed off, <laughs> he headed off to, to save Georgia, but then he got a simple solution. The Georgian government gave him a simple solution and now he's in, in jail. Yeah, <laughs> simply, simply solved. Yeah, and that's the result. I suppose. if I was fucking, if I was Sakashvili, and I had already been stripped of citizenship, mm-hmm. and then gone to Ukraine, and then been kicked out of Ukraine, and then gone back to Ukraine, I would simply not go back to Georgia. I would simply go to my uh, apartment in Williamsburg, and I would simply just stop doing shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but no one in Williamsburg is interested in simple solutions or results. No, that's true. You know. He's got to go somewhere where you're going to be listened to, even if it means risking jail time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's right. kind of crazy. He, he, he was counting on some like, ha- you know, awesome color revolution when he came back, like from his supporters. But it didn't really happen. People, people don't really like him that much. So. Yeah. Yeah. so I wanted to sort of take a few threads, right? Because there's a paragraph in your article that I, I, I want to read, right? So thinking, what is all of this in service of, right? Because it's certainly not... All of this liberalization, as much as as much as it is believed that it will, if you have the right institutional arrangement, that your economy will become the U.S. economy, and that the U.S. economy is the U.S. economy because of its institutions, not because of, for example, its relationship with like other countries on the periphery, not because of its history as an imperial power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Um, regardless of whether that belief is truly held, uh, that we have these this arra- this this rearrangement of the institutions to create sort of things like less state support, even if it's not practical to give it, to finish the job of undermining um, sort of the trade union power and, and stripping the labor code of most protections, um, of floating the currency, of doing these, th- of, of speed running essentially, um, in some ways, American economic history from 1970 to present day. Um, and, you, and you sort of ask, you know, if it's not in service of, of, of winning this existential struggle, then what is it in service of? Uh, and this is a, a paragraph in your article um, about the about the plan itself. It says, while the plan does involve uh, rebuilding infrastructure, nothing is said about any state-led reconstruction of Ukraine's industrial complex. No doubt it is assumed that efficient private investors will accomplish this with gusto. But if they don't, which I think we can, and this is me editorializing, which I think we can all assume they won't, because every time that it has been assumed that this will happen, it never happens. Never. Ukraine's final transformation into a deindustrialized source for agricultural good and labor pow- goods and labor power is simply natural and in accordance with the liberal principles of each nation's comparative advantage. Instead of effective wartime interventions, the government sticks to its old formula of justifying present sacrifices in the name of promised EU prosperity. And I, I think that's that's a quite it's a quite good way of summing up, right? That fundamentally, the economic transformation that Ukraine is undergoing is ha- is is not changed because of the war except for it has been sped up because the crisis because you know you never waste a crisis uh and that that's sort of how i interpret that that line that that paragraph in your article but it's one that i think does a good job of say of suggesting what all this is in service of do you do you think that's about right yeah for sure um i, I wrote some like other stuff on um on my Substack, sort of about this kind of these accelerations of pre-war trends during the war. And like one of them is this kind of sort of whole uh, anti-deoligarchization sort of thing, like getting rid of the oligarchs, uh, which has also happened because of the war. Because like the oligarchs were always kind of like the enemy 
of the West and of the sort of like, I don't know, like Grant community, I guess you can say. Because the oligarchs, right, they're like, they're like the national bourgeoisie or whatever, right? Like they, they want to have some sort of protection for their industry and they sort of, uh, they don't really want to let in too much foreign capital and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so like the uh, the IMF and so on, they're always like really like battling with them, you know, with like Kolomoisky and so on and so on. I mean, obviously also they they have like lots of friends among the oligarchs, but like generally they want to get rid of them. Also because the oligarchs, they kind of have all these industrial interests and most of these industrial interests depend in some way. Uh, I mean, like on having beneficial like trade relations with Russia. So they always want to come to some agreement with Russia. So there's kind of like a geopolitical aspect of getting rid of them as well. And then uh, lots of people interpreted the victory of Zelensky as kind of a victory for the oligarchs, right? Because like, you know, Kolomoisky's back and so on and so on. Uh, it didn't really turn out. It kind of did, kind of wasn't. Uh, I mean, who knows? It's all very complicated. But um, but in the war, right, like the oligarchs have really struggled, right? Because like, they, they, they've, they've uh, you know, I think Akhmetov, the richest guy, he's lost like 60% of his assets or something, of his wealth generally. And like they've lost... Uh, and lots of them, Akhmetov is just like leaving. He's like, uh, he sold off his media empire and all this sort of stuff because there's, there's, there's no point in having it anymore. Is Zelensky stripping Koilomoy- Is Zelensky stripping Koilomoysky of Ukrainian citizenship? Yeah, uh, yeah, an, he, yeah. An, an, act of, of an act of like, is that Zelensky carrying out the politi- geopolitical will of the West? Or is there like some people have suggested something something else happening here where like, you know, this guy has Israeli and Cypriot passports, and this is this is some kind of like shadowy power move to stop him from being extradited or something. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, look, uh, I think it's more of a kind of uh, that's interesting about maybe stopping him being extradited. I think it's like he stripped these. Uh, the main reason behind his stripping citizenship and stuff, he's basically trying to get rid of like regional power centers. Like, and Kolomoisky was the sponsor of like all these dudes in uh, Dnipropetrovsk region. That were like like Corbin and other dudes and Volatov, and they've been kind of big. They've kind of critiqued Zelensky in the war. They're also very popular in their regions, as far as that can be said, relatively speaking. And they kind of like got lots of cred for like you know leading the war struggle or whatever in their area. Um, so like and so and like there's kind of this worry that they're becoming like a autonomous power power region power center of power basically. So that's kind of the generally accepted reason why i got rid of that is it also because these people are uh these people are generally located in the east that if if russia does manage to secure that territory entirely that their loyalty will be to you know just essentially maintain their economic interests and and just do what they were doing before but instead in the service of like whatever republic emerges i don't know i mean i think i think they would probably they wouldn't really like uh because i mean like you know, lots of like pro people who before the war were considered pro-Russian. Now they're super anti-Russian. Like uh, it's like Max Bujanov, uh, Bujansky, I forgot his name exactly. But like lots of these sort of dudes. I mean, like lots of it's sort of the thing. You know, like these guys, they like in Ukraine, they're like the big dogs, right? And they get like sort of first first uh, choice in terms of like you know uh, eating up the budget, right? The state budget and so on, and like. Uh, if they were in Russia, they're just like small dogs. You know, like they're small, small, like regional level guys. They don't get that much choice in like they don't really have any access to the federal budget and so on and so on. So it's kind of kind of clear that they have a lot more uh, privileges in like Ukraine as a state, right? This kind of like these regional sort of like 
power elite and so on. So I don't really think they're elite. I mean, like, I think at the lower levels, you have, like, change in um, uh, allegiance, in, like, sort of, like, I don't know, village mayors and stuff, whatever. Like, you have this to go over to the Russian side because they don't really have that much, like, that many privileges in Ukraine anyway. But, like, you know, in Mariupol, for instance, like, the mayor, he's still, like, you know, he just went to Ukraine, like, they're controlled by the Ukraine government, and he's super, like, anti, anti-Russia anti and so on and so on. Um, but, like, I think, I mean, it's not only against Eastern Ukrainian sort of... Because, like, the other thing that I talk about in my article is they also got rid of the citizenship of the leader of the Golos party, which is pretty interesting. Uh, and she, and she's, like, the super... Because, like, this is the thing. So, Lindsay's kind of getting, like pressed both by like i guess regional power centers especially in kind of like close to the front areas where they've built up this sort of reputation as like you know military defense and so on and also by like these pro-west you know corruption anti-corruption activists and so on who are like sort of like uh as i talked about before at the beginning about shabunian who's like talking about oh you know like defense uh blah blah corruption inefficient and so on and so on and repeating these like you know like vicious russian propaganda you know rumors and so on so he's kind of getting pressed on both sides. He has to give some concessions to the anti-corruption people, also to get like, you know, Western financial aid and so on. But he still doesn't, you know, the situation obviously is kind of different uh, from what the anti-corruption people want to see. He still has like, you know, I mean, like, I think like, you know, he still has his kind of like his coterie or whatever, uh, like Yermak and so on. And they sort of have like, kind of an autonomous power center from the West, which makes sense. I mean, if you're a country at war, you know, you kind of don't want to like give over everything. Uh, but like this kind of creeps out, like, you know, Yermak used to be kind of like linked to like party of regions, Yanukovych he used to be like a lawyer for a big party of regions guy back in before Maidan and so on. Uh, so like they're kind of worried about Yermak. They think he's like a Russian agent. They've always been saying this, like the Poroshenko guys and so on before the war, they were always like, Yermak is a Russian agent and so on and so on. So, so what I'm what I'm hearing basically is that uh, you know the story that we we're told uh, about uh, sort of internal power consolidation, this sort of flattened, very simple story is maybe not entirely true. That maybe it's more. Complex. Well, he's definitely consolidating power. Like he's definitely like you know like put it replacing people that like aren't loyal to him with people totally loyal to him. That's definitely true. Yeah. I think I meant more like I think I meant more like we we definitely get an impression here that Ukraine as a country is uh, solid that the war is solidly united uh, everyone against yeah against uh, the Russians that the entire country is mobilized and uh, working together which is you know obviously not really the case yeah I mean it's just like what does it really mean and there's like a good article about this in Ukrainian website about like what does it really mean to have like opinion polls in wartime right you're asking yeah, someone yeah, that's a that's a good point <laughs> well it's 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 a lot of a lot of these same arguments are deployed right where you say well any any referendum in kherson like done by the russians in order to annex it would be illegitimate because any a referendum in an in, in wartime is is illegitimate which yeah that's probably a great point but maybe should also count for opinion polls yeah exactly <laughs> it doesn't really make much sense right you're in a war where like you know i mean i know from like you know, people who talk about like who like my friend who's been who like a public he's a public like human rights defender and so on. He talks about like you know peace negotiations being a good thing, and you know, and the SBU comes in and beats him up, right, and like <laughs> secret services and so on, and like puts a criminal charge against him. So like, and then if you ask people in a government poll, 
do you think Ukraine should negotiate? <laughs> so like, obviously, you know, there's one option they're going to choose, right? Like, yeah, and yeah. if they say on the TV, like, you know, on TV, there's one channel, the government channel, and just constantly, constantly says, you know, like Russia, you know, is evil, like orcs, they're going to like murder, rape everyone, you know, and like, you know, we're going to win, you know, with all this, you know, and so on and so on. Military hardware and yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. And like, and I think, you know, generally it's like people don't really care that much about like saying their true opinion in a poll in a country in in Ukraine in general before the war as well right it's a country where like there are really serious consequences for having like the wrong opinion yeah we t- we talked about this a little bit before when you were on uh the last time we were talking about like uh op- like opinion polling approval polling around Yanukovych and then uh and and then directly after around Poroshenko and how like sort of uh complex it is to in- interpret opinion polls after after like a after a after like Maidan, you know yeah 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 but anyway i mean like in terms of consolidation like yeah there definitely has been a lot of consolidation like i've definitely noticed this among people i knew who like didn't used to be like super super kind of guess like you know nationalist and so on and, like overnight they kind of like really switched yeah i mean like people can change their opinions one way the other way uh, getting bombed uh, was- uh really has a way of uh calcifying your political opinions yeah yeah i mean like you know I just think it's kind of like it's very like superficial and like irresponsible. I think when people like people in the West kind of like you know look at this like one kind of I don't know, like opinion poll or something or like opinions of people like okay this is this this determine this means that everything we're doing is correct or whatever mm-hmm. you know it's just my opinion but like you know it is what it is. I think right now it's kind of a process where it's like what's going on in that country. It's like it feels very much outside of control uh, in terms of like internal processes in terms of external different interests in the country and like i don't know i just like i still talk about this country because i don't know my family lives there and stuff and uh lots of my family does and and i just kind of feel at least maybe at least other countries can sort of take heed from the sort of processes that i think there was a point when you could have stopped all this um right now not really but like hopefully other countries can like look at this and sort of maybe take some lessons or whatever and like um yeah well, I I think you you talk about this right, you see. Well, what we, about these the the idea that this is this is a process of slipping away of control? And I mean, th- thinking about this in terms of well, what's the West doing? What's Canada doing? And all this stuff is we're continuing to interfere. We're we're we are being an external process that is weighing on and accel- weighing on some and accelerating others of these processes that are. Um, you know, ultimately removing a lot of people's control over their own lives, and that we don't fully understand. And as you say, right, it is um, much of much of the information that is fed back to to uh, to, to through the Western media is is, is quite sort of you know, superficial. Um, and and I think you know we see a lot of, in our in our last free episode, right? We talked about you know debates and par- people citing people in Parliament citing those very superficial news reports and stuff to one another to justify uh, further sort of interference with these processes that we don't fully understand. And, you know, again, it's the, the, what we've always said every time we talk about this, when we were talk, when we've talked to you about it last, when we've talked about it before amongst ourselves, is that time and again, uh, there is, we have had this very multi-layered and complex situation presented to us and have decided that the um, the way to uh, avert risk, the way to alleviate the maximum amount of, of suffering, ostensibly, right, is uh, to accelerate it. Uh, and so far, I think that has produced 
uh, unpredictable uh, results, not exactly, um, not and not the ones that sort of anyone necessarily uh, wanted. Uh, that that's that's the impression that I get, and you know the, what what you sort of shed so much light on, talking about the Lugano plan, talking about the um, different personal relationships that led up to the various you know workings out of individual rivalries or the various long-standing political trends, such as you know the de-Sovietization of the uh, trade union bureaucracy or you know yeah deindustrialization of um, and and of the sort of the last sort of group of economic um, policymakers who seem to really, really believe in Reinhard Rogoff. You know, <laughs> these long-standing um, uh, uh, trends. <laughs> yeah, these long-standing trends. Um, just, uh, it, it seems as though what we, yeah, what we have done is stepped on the accelerator of them, essentially. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's why it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a battle of values, as they say. But, um, yeah. Well, I looking at time, and I think we're um, we're at about time, and uh, it's time for uh, Dan and I to go have more shellfish. That's right. Uh, so I want to say, uh, Peter, uh, I'm very glad to talk to you again. I'm happy you're, you're uh, safely in the Anglosphere for now. Um, sorry and, and happy. Yes, sorry that you have to be, but happy you're safe. Um, and uh, yeah, just can you tell our uh, wonderful listeners where they can find more of your writing, perhaps on Substack? Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me, guys. I've got a Substack called Events in Ukraine, got a Telegram also where I talk. I just kind of lately I've been kind of lazy. I just translate various Ukrainian telegrams that I follow just because like, why not? Uh, but uh, yeah, you can find me on there. We'll put a link in the description. It's just Substack Events in Ukraine. Nothing really too flashy about it. But um, yeah. Highly recommended. Yes. A, a highly recommended Substack for those who uh, have the disease where they need to know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank uh, all you out there in Radio Land for subscribing to our Patreon. Uh, we love each and every one of you. We do. Uh, and then next week, when it's back in the free episode, it'll be uh, an ocean between uh, myself and Dan once again. That's right. Um, so anyway, we'll see all of you then. Bye, everyone. Bye.